Hi, I'm Nev. And I'm Sarah. And you're listening to Naira. A podcast that sheds some light on notable Jewish women of the past. Death, despair, repentance, and rebirth. Let's talk about Nami. Nami may not be the focus of Megillus but she's certainly not just a sidekick. She was a princess of Yehuda who, with her family, abandoned the Jewish people in a time of famine. She suffered the loss of her husband and both her children before making the decision to face her mistakes, returning to shame and humiliation in Israel. Her lot in life was definitely challenging, but she made the choice to turn her life around, saving not only herself, but the entire fate of the Jewish people. Let's take a closer look at Naomi's life. We are introduced to Naomi and Ris Rabbah tells us that, based on her name, her actions and characteristics were pleasant. Because Naomi means pleasant. Exactly. So the Nachas Yosef, who real name was Rav Yosef Zev Lipowitz, a Polish-born commentator in the early 1900s who was a close student of the altar of Slobodka, has a commentary on Megillus that we're going to be using a lot. And he explains that through her actions, she merited to be connected to Mashiach, the Messiah, and we know she was significant to the Messianic lineage because her name is mentioned. We know that she's important because she's in the Megillah. If she wasn't, she wouldn't be there. Just to like set the scene a little bit about how the story is starting, it was a time of the Shoftim, the Shoftim were ruling in Israel. Boaz was the current Shofate, and there was a famine in Israel. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and their sons, Machlon and Kilion, they were very wealthy, but they leave Eretz Israel. they leave Israel. And Rashi explains that they do that to avoid responsibility. They knew that they would end up having to shoulder the responsibility of feeding their nation. And so they moved to Moab. There's an interesting point that the Midrash Lekach Tov brings up. He says that Elimelech was the Ikar, or the main decision maker in this decision, and his kids and his wife were the Tfelim. They had secondary input. So it wasn't necessarily Naomi's decision to go. It's really cool to note that the Pesach refers to them as Ephratim. It means like important people. And the Malbim explains that they were called that because of Ephrat, who was important. And it's just cool to note as a side point that Ephrat was also known as Miriam. Name dropping another cool woman here. Yeah. Fast forward to another episode. So the whole family moves to Moab and soon they start to die, starting with Elimelech and then their two children. And Rashi points out that in the Pasuk, it refers to Elimelech as the husband of Naomi, specifically because Naomi is the person, being his wife, would, who would feel his death the most. Yeah, and it emphasizes the fact that Naomi remained. And Malvin points out that the reason that it, point, that it emphasizes her remaining is because she did not participate in their sin. She always planned on returning to Eretz The term that's used is shiari shiarim, a remains of a remain. And I think it also signifies the fact that she was basically all alone in a country that wasn't hers, which must have been a very isolating experience. But this is when it starts to get interesting. Because after losing her family and basically being alone by herself, Naomi makes this important decision that changes her entire life around. The Pasuk uses the term Vatakam Naomi. Naomi gets up, and I think that that's very representative of what happens here. In his signature style, the Al-Shakas, like, why does it say Vatakam Naomi? Naomi got up. Like, 
Presumably, if she's leaving, she's getting up. The Nachos Yosef kind of answers that question that the Alshech brings up, and he says that the, the rising up that's going on over here is not a reference to her actual leaving. It's a reference to her decision to leave. And he says that her decision to leave was a result of some like deep self-reflection about her life's downhill spiral and that it was a very difficult decision for her. She had to basically reckon with all the failures that her life had presented to her until that point and all the bad decisions that some people say that she had more of a say in it and some people say that she had less of a say like the Malbim, but ultimately she is in this difficult situation regardless of her input. Exactly. And she realizes that she can make a change and she can go back to Eretz Yisrael. She can go back to Israel and face those mistakes that she made and do the right thing. And realizing that going back to Israel, as we'll see later on, is not about like being welcomed with open arms and hugged by all her neighbors. It, it was humiliating and she's coming back in poverty. Some commentaries explain that she lost all her money, and she still made that decision, knowing what it entailed. Right, and she's also coming back with a Moabite daughter-in-law, and there was a lot of stigma around that. And yet she made this critical decision, like she looked at what her life was and realized this is not, this is not how I want my life to go, and dealt with the consequences. And just interesting to note that the Alshech, in his myriad of questions um, and answers was that he says that the word vatakam na'ami, so the whole Pasuk is talking about na'ami, is going with Russ and with Arpa. She was going with her daughters-in-law. Um, but the word vatakam na'ami is in singular, and it's in past. The rest of the Pasuk is written in present, actually, and it's written in plural. They're all getting up. They're all going. They're all going on the path. It describes it in detail, the Pasuk, um, because it was her decision. She made this decision, and um, we know machshava tova kemaisa, a good thought is considered like a deed. So as, she, as soon as she made the decision like to turn her life around, to go back, it was considered as though she did it. So Nami leaves and Rashti highlights the impact that she had on Moab. He relates her leaving to the leaving of Yaakov when he leaves Beersheba, where he similarly comments that Yaakov's departure left an empty space where he used to be. And I think the reason Rashi is compelled to comment this is because, you know, the Sikkim describing Naami's uh, leaving of Moab are extremely repetitive in describing what happened. So it says, Vatakam Hivakalasa, like, it says she got up, she returned from Stay Moab because she heard things. And then it says she, she got up from the place and they went on the road to go back to, to Yehuda. It, it's ext- it's extremely repetitive, the puzzle. It could have just said, you know, he got up. But it, it goes in great detail uh, to sort of highlight, like the Nahasusi said, to highlight the decision she made. And also to highlight, like you just said, Rashi pointed out, like sort of the gaping hole that she left in Moa. Which is, I think, something that is also connected to the fact that she, her sons had married basically Moabite princesses. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. Yeah, but I think more than that, like, I don't want to trivialize her importance. I think that, that her impact on Moab was, was more than just connections to royalty. I think it was because when Yaakov left Beersheba, like, that wasn't a, that wasn't because he was connected. Um, 
and Rashi is making this connection between Yaakov and Naomi here. And um, I think it probably speaks more to her character rather than her her family relations. Yeah, and I think the Nachlas Yosef that um that the Nachlas Yosef that we're gonna discuss next sort of like brings out that point when she when she left. So so Naomi's on her way to leave. Um and she's Rissa and Arpa try coming with her, so Naomi's like, no, go back to your mom. And um and she she basically blesses them. She says, like, Hashem should do kindness with you like he did with me. And which is actually interesting to note, because like she says, I'll let Hashem do kindness with you like he did with me. And it's like, did he really do kindness with you? Um, so I guess she was an optimist. The Nahas Yosef comments on her warmth and kindness in her saying so that even though she was going through an exceptionally hard time, she wished them well. And he also he also says something a little bit different, which I think is important because it, it lends to the complexity of Naomi as a character and as a person. Naomi says, return three times. And, and from here, we learn that you need to discourage converts from converting three times. You push them away. But in addition to those three times, there is an extra lechna, which means go. So the Nachos Yosef kind of focuses on that, and he, he asks, why is there an extra go? She pushed her away three times already. Uh, and he says that she was, a little bit of her was ashamed to return to Israel with a non-Jewish daughter-in-law. And he says that it wasn't even necessarily a, a conscious thing that was going on in her mind. It was more of a, a hidden feeling. He says a regesh nistar, like, almost like a subconscious thing, and it was released in this extra word of lechna. It sort of humanizes her. Like, it does two things, I think. Like, on one hand, you can see that Naomi was a real person, and this was a difficult decision for her. And, you know, the fact that Rus, her daughter-in-law, wanted to come along was part of that, was part of that difficulty, even if it was a little bit. And I, I think another thing also is that it was really only a subconscious, like, little thing that expressed itself in one word. I think if it was me, I don't know, it might have been a little bit more on my mind. It was a subconscious thing, but she was really able to get over it. And and she clearly was able to get over it because she, she does let Rush join her, despite right. knowing that she'll face additional humiliation in Israel. Exactly. That's a good point. So Naomi um, gives them a bracha. She blesses them and she's like, I hope you find rest in the house of a husband, which it's interesting to note that the Medrash in Rus Rabbah there points out that there is no rest for a woman but in marriage. Uh, so it, that's just like an interesting side point to note that cultural time, I guess, that that like marriage was such a focus. And interesting to note because Naomi is going back as a widowed person and Rus is going back as a widowed person. So they're not your typical people, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I think beyond... Beyond that Chazal being a cultural thing, which it certainly is, the Nachlis Yosef has an interesting explanation. He explains that there is a certain psychological security that he calls menucha, or rather he says that this menucha, this, this um, rest, is, um, is, refers to a certain psychological security that is only fulfilled for women not by riches or greatness or royalty, 
but by marriage. Yeah, but it is interesting to note, though, how um, society was kind of like stacked against Ami. She's like widowed. She's childless. She loses all her money. She's coming back with this non-Jewish daughter-in-law. She's humiliated. Her family just abandoned the Jewish people in their greatest time of need. Um, And now she's coming back when things are kind of looking up for the Jewish people. And she's still making that decision, knowing, knowing what she's, she clearly knows what she's getting herself into, you know, the, and she knows what her life has been and she knows what it's going to look like. And yet she knows that going back to Israel is the right thing to do. She makes the choice to do the right thing and go back and deal with the consequences of her decisions or the decisions that were forced upon her, depending on which opinion you hold by. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so so Nami is trying to dissuade Russ and Arpa from staying with her and coming back to Israel with her. And she tells them, my lot is more bitter than yours because Hashem has struck me. Uh, Which is interesting because just two seconds before she's like, Hashem should do kindness with you like he did with me. But okay, (laughs) I guess you can appreciate the good and the bad. You can. And I think Naomi's relationship to her suffering and to to her lot in life is is, is very complex because sometimes she very much acknowledges the hard lot that she's been dealt with. We'll see later on, she refers to herself as Mara, as bitter. And there are times where, where she seems a little bit more optimistic, maybe, or or she focuses less on, on all the all the bad things that happens to her. So I think it's interesting to see that those those two sides of her, which I think is also very a very human trait. Yeah, and I also think that it shows that she was like a realist. Or when you picture somebody who's an optimist, you might say, oh, they they just they have no clue what's going on. You know, she she just thinks everything's perfect and doesn't realize that everything's falling apart. But I don't think Nami was like that. It sounds like she was definitely an optimist, but she she was also a realist. She recognized, you know, she'd be she'd have to be pretty dumb to miss the fact that her husband and sons just died. She she recognized that she'd been through a lot, and yet, despite being very, very aware of what she was going through, she remained hopeful and remained faithful and tried to focus on the positive and remain grateful for what what kindness she felt that she still had. Yeah, there there's this term that I've heard recently, and it's it's toxic positivity, or like I think what you were describing, basically just just looking at the positive sides of of life. Like everything and, is fine. Just ignore my burning down house. That's not true. That's just confetti. <laughs> exactly. Like oh, it's so nice. This ash is is so pretty. Um, <laughs> but I think I mean wasn't wasn't that? But she wasn't a pessimist either. She managed to strike this very, I think, healthy balance of. Sure, there were difficult things that happened to me in my life, but you know what? It could have been worse, and I'm going to do what I can to do the right thing and to make my life better, which she did, and she made all of our lives better. But on that note about Naomi's optimis- optimism, uh, the Nachos Yosef does compare her to Eov. Yes. When she's saying that her lot has been more bitter than theirs, um, the Nachos Yosef says that she is carrying the dust of her life in her heart. Uh, he uses that very descriptive language. And she's basically kind of almost given up. Uh, and I know this is kind of at odds with what we were talking about before. But 
it could be that at this point she's maybe just being hard on herself. And I know that that is a dangerous path to tread. Uh, I don't want to glorify being like being so hard on yourself that you're basically, I don't know, beating yourself up. But she's recognizing that she's hit rock bottom. She's recognizing that she's away from home. She doesn't have her family anymore. She doesn't have any money. She she has, like, nothing. Although, I don't know if she has nothing because apparently her departure from Moab left a gaping hole. So I guess she, she did have some kind of community there. But she's realizing, I guess, that she's lost everything that's important in life. And she's reckon, reckoning with that and realizing that this is where her choices have led her. And... This is what she's got to do to go back. Yeah. And she's not young. Yeah, that's a good point. She's lost her children who are adults. She's old. She doesn't think that she's, you know, going to go back and get married and have kids and it'll just be like it never happened, you know? She's well into her life. Right. And it, it makes it so much more significant, I think, her change. Because if you think about it, she had nothing to gain. Like you said, she was already older. And she was happy in Moab. Exactly. Uh, For all intents and purposes, like, she had it going for her in Moab. She was well-connected. She was well-respected. Maybe she wasn't in her homeland or the land where she was born and grew up, but she was doing okay. They clearly liked her because they thought that when she left, it made an impression, says Rashi. Exactly. But... Nevertheless, like, she took stock of her life, and she realized that the right thing to do would be to go back. Right, and, and this, this wasn't where she wanted to be. Right, and, and so she left, but it's not, I don't think she went back thinking that she was going to have this whole new start. She was going back because she knew that that was the right thing to do, but she didn't really have so much to look forward to there but she she made that decision yeah and she she essentially uh, wrote herself a legacy and made herself historically significant yeah so despite naomi's efforts to dissuade her russ russ insists on staying and going back with her and she gives her very famous speech to naomi about how she'll go wherever she goes where where you go i'll go where you Sleep, I'll sleep, or you, or you are buried, I'll, bar- I'll be buried, etc. Yes, and the Nahas Yosef interprets this whole speech of Rus in a very interesting way. He uses this instance to, kind of, to showcase Naomi taking Rus under her wing and preparing her for her conversion because. At this point, he says, Nami stops discouraging her from converting and starts to prepare her for Jewish life and teaching her the laws of the Torah and the laws of conversion because she sees that she's she's very serious about it. And he says that these psukim where Rus is saying, wherever you go, I'll go, is Rus responding to the teaching that Naomi is giving her. So, for example, Naomi tells her that Jewish women don't go to theaters and Rus says, Sure, wherever you go, I'll go. He notes that the reason that Naomi teaches her this thing first, that Jewish women don't go to theaters, is because she knows Rus's background. And she knows that she was brought up 
in Moab and she's used to certain things and her values and her priorities are different. And she's trying, she's taking a very personalized approach to teaching her and is really targeting the differences between the Jewish people and the Moabi people. She's telling her, well, I know you're used to going to theaters and, and stuff, but Jewish women don't do that. And I think this is a really important point, uh, point in time because it showcases Naomi's spiritual mentorship of Rus, or the beginning of it at least, because we see it continue throughout the Megillah, that she not only takes Rus under her wing in terms of helping her convert and in terms of like a physical location, she also is spiritually mentoring her and has her spiritual well-being in mind the entire time. Just to backtrack a little, because I, I think we got went off on a lot of little tangents. So her, there's a famine. Ami's in Moab with her family. She loses everybody. She makes the decision to go back. She tries to dissuade Rus and Arpa. Arpa ends up going to, from joining her. Arpa ends up going back, and Rus comes with her. So Nami and Rus go back to Israel. They go to Beis Lachem, which is where they're from. Uh, they get there, and everyone completely freaks out, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, is this actually Nami?" And Aris Raba, it kind of elaborates on the conversation that went on. So Naomi gets there and everyone's like, wait, is this really Naomi? Meaning she used to be dressed so nicely and now she's dressed in rags and she's thin and she's hungry. He gives a metaphor of a plow ox and, and you're like trying to sell your ox and you're like, this is an awesome ox. And I'm like, well, if this is such an awesome ox, then why does it have whip marks on it? Because the whip marks are a sign that it's been beaten and it needed a little help getting where it was. So by Naomi showing the signs of her suffering, she's kind of showing that that it's not just her physical humiliation. It's not just like, oh, look at her, her like dorky dress. It's more like, look what, what Hashem had to put her through. And if she was so, if Naomi was as great as we thought she was, then why did Hashem need to make her suffer? So it's not just physical humiliation, but spiritual. Yeah, and at that point, she responds to the women who who are saying these things and who are shocked by her appearance. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because Hashem has made my life bitter. And Mara means bitter. And the Nachos Yosef expounds on this. He says that even though she went through all these hardships, she was happy because she saw her life as a kind of cautionary tale for everybody else and that people could, could learn from. And that's why she says, call me Mara, so that whenever they would say her name, they would be reminded of the course that her life took and be inspired or learn to go the opposite way. Don't be like that, Mara. Exactly. And this idea that her life could be used as a lesson was something that gave her an element of comfort. And the Nachos Yosef again compares her to Eov saying that their outcomes were ultimately different because of their different actions. So Naomi does tshuva and recognizes that the reality of her life is, is her fault and she takes responsibility for that. And because of this, because of her recognition of her actions, she has an effect on society as a whole. She basically brings Mashiach into the world if not physically, then through her actions spiritually, she brings Rus and Boaz together. Eov, on the other hand, also goes through lots of suffering, but 
he doesn't go through that whole process that Nami did of tshuva and subsequently doesn't doesn't affect the whole world or Jewish destiny. His story is purely personal. You know, we don't look at Eov and say, look at his importance to the Jewish story. It's it's more like an isolated incident that we can learn from rather than Naomi's story, which is integral to our existence. Right. So her taking responsibility and owning up and making the decision to learn from her suffering and change the course of her life made her integral to the destiny of the Jewish people. So Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because Hashem has made my life very bitter. And she goes on and she says, I went away full, which is just interesting to note as a side point. Side point, Malaya Halachi, I went away full. And Rashi points out that according to some explanations, she means she left when she was pregnant. So that's just another loss that she may have suffered. And so she says, Malaya Halachi, I went, I went, I left full. Verekam Hashivani, which is very poetic words, actually. I went away full and I come back empty. Vashem Anabi, she says, she says, Hashem has Anabi testified against me, dealt harshly with me. Rashi there says, Hashem Anabi, Hashem has testified against me, that she's saying that Hashem testified that she sinned. She's like doing tshuva. She's saying vidoy. And then Ralbog adds that she's essentially saying that all of the hardships that she suffered were actually punishments for her decisions and her life's course. She's very much doing public vidoy, you know, publicly admitting what she did. It's hard enough to do like a personal vidoy and to admit to your mistakes personally, but to open up about them in a public manner, it's a whole new level. At this point, we're introduced to Boaz, who is Naomi's relative, and Ruth tells Naomi that she's going to go collect grain, and Naomi encourages her to do so. Then the Psukim go through Ruth collecting grain from Boaz's field, and he is curious about her and hears her story and tells her to only collect from him. He'll take care of her. He gives her food, and he sends her back to Naomi. So Naomi sees Russ coming home with all this food, and she asks her question. She's like, where'd you get all that food from? And it's just interesting to note that maybe as her spiritual mentor, she's like, who are you hanging out with? Who's giving you food? You know, she doesn't want her hanging out with sketchy people. She wants to make sure that everything's okay there, you know? Right, because if you think about it, you know, if, if Naomi is coming, Russ is coming home with all this extra grain, Nami's worried about where she's getting it from. She's worried that she's perhaps getting it from people who are not exactly upstanding. And as her spiritual mentor, I think, she expresses this concern. So Rez explains what happened with Boaz. And Nami's like, oh, Boaz, I know him. So she blesses him. She says that they're related, actually. And she says, yeah, keep on going there. She encourages her to keep going to Boaz's field to gather grains. So after that... A new chapter begins with Nami telling Riss to go settle down and find rest, using the same word, menucha, as we heard before, basically telling her to get married. And she explains that Boaz is going to be sleeping in his granary and she should go get dressed and, and go over there. Rashi interestingly explains that Nami is giving Russ pretty detailed instructions for how to go to Boaz. So she says, wash yourself, scent yourself, and get dressed. And Rashi points out there that by wash yourself, she means wash off the Avodah the idol worship from you. Scent yourself with the mitzvot, with the commandments, and get dressed in your Shabbos clothes, which I guess could mean either you're 
physical Shabbos clothes, or it can be a reference to the spirituality of Shabbos. But either way, um, that's just another example of her kind of being her spiritual mentor and giving her some more spiritual advice. Furthering this point, the word that Naomi uses to send Rus to the granary is written and spoken aloud differently, which, which signals something. So the word is written via radity, and I will go. And it is spoken via radit, and you will go. So the fact that it is written and I will go signals that Naomi is sending her merit along with Rus. Rashi says that, and the Nachas Yosef expounds on that and makes a connection between Rivka sending Yaakov to go get the brachos. He says that Rivka also sent her merit along with him. So Naomi gives Rus these instructions. She says, dress yourself, wash yourself, scent yourself, dress yourself, go to the granary at night, lie down and uncover Boaz's feet. And she gives him all these uh, detailed instructions, which are, I don't know about other people, but reading this, I think we did. And I think most people felt like a little uncomfortable. It seems not like something your typical base Yaakov girl would do. And not something your typical base Yaakov teacher, if we're looking at Nami in that way, would advise you to do. Like, if we're looking at Nami as her spiritual mentor, like, she's telling Rus to do these things. To just go to the granary at night and go to Boaz and lie down next to him, uncover his feet. Yeah. Exactly. And the Nachas Yosef, point, like, he points this out. He says it's morally dubious. And the explanation that he gives is that something like this can only be justified in this situation because of the great people involved because we already know that they were doing something righteous we can retroactively apply righteousness to this instance i think it's important to note here that Rus is going with the intention of doing yibum which is it's a it's a way of carrying on someone's legacy if they've died childless so nami's son Rus's husband died without having children so there's there's a mitzvah for Rus to go and marry her husband's closest relative and have a child with him, and that child will be considered like her husband Mahlon's son or daughter. So since Boaz is their relative, Naomi is advising Rus to go do these actions, go to the granary at night and go to Boaz so that in the hopes that they can do Yibam together and they can have a child and carry on the legacy of Mahlon. Right, that is an important point, because Boaz was not just a random guy who Nami was like, well, he's, he's a nice guy. This is a good shidduch option. <laughs> he seems sweet. Exactly. No, there was a very specific reason that she sent her in the direction of Boaz, and that reason was they were related and could do yibam. Back to the Nachos Yosef, he says that knowing what happens afterwards, knowing that their union would be the start of Malchus based David, the messianic lineage, we can and we should kind of remove the seeming moral dubiousness that surrounds the actions and and look at it as more of a righteous deed. And he relates this to other instances in Tanakh where similar things have happened. For example, the story with the Dudaim, all the instance with Yehuda and Tamar. And he says that just like we look at those things now and we see them as the beginning of something significant for the Jewish people as a whole, this is a similar situation where basically the ends justify the means. 
It's a little hard to accept that answer. Yeah, it, it is a little bit hard to accept it, but I think it's important to to share. It is, and and I think we we discussed this a lot prior to recording this, and I think we, I think we kind of think I think what we kind of came to is that there was nothing halakhically wrong performed here. If you if you go through what Russ did with Boaz. She's not married. There's not there's not a problem with Yichud of being alone with him. She's not doing anything that that is not technically permissible. It just seems a little sketchy, and it doesn't seem like like we said something your basiyaku teacher would advise you to do. But I liked how you worded it before. You said that maybe the Nachos Yosef is just suggesting that we remove the stigma that we've created because of the boundaries we've rightfully built. So we have these boundaries. You know, most of us. Don't go into granaries at night with uh, men we barely know, even if it's not necessarily a halachic problem. And that, that's a boundary that we've created, and that's good. But in order to understand the story, it might be helpful to remove the stigma we've created, in a sense, because of these boundaries, so we can understand the story. Yeah, I think that that's, that's the way that I basically like to think about it, because I think it can be very dangerous to think about the ends justifying the means, and therefore we can do anything for a good cause, because we obviously know that that isn't true. Rosa agrees to do what Naomi says, and she meets Boaz a night in the granary, and he agrees to act as her goal and redeem her. So she comes back, Naomi asks her what happens, and Rus tells her. Then Boaz finds this person who is referred to only as Plony Almoni, or Joe Schmo, basically who would be a closer relative to, to Naomi. So he's more eligible for Yiba than Boaz is. Exactly. Basically, they would have to bypass him, him in order for Boaz to marry Russ because he's a closer relative. They find out that Plony Almoni does not indeed want to act as her Goel or her Redeemer. And so Boaz and Russ are able to marry each other, which they do. The townspeople bless them and... She gets pregnant. So about Rus getting pregnant, the Rus Rava says that Boaz did his part, Rus did her part, and Nami did hers. So Hashem said, I'll do mine. And the Nachlas Yosef points out that Nami's inclusion in this equation, it doesn't say Boaz and Rus and then Hashem did his. It was Boaz and Rus and Nami. They were all equal partners in this equation which is significant. It shows that Naomi's role in bringing them together was really, really important. And he kind of asks the question, like, what were the things that she did? They all did their part. So what was Naomi's part? So he says that her part was basically all these things that we've been going through so far that she moved back to Beis Lechem, to Israel, after her family was already established in Moab for many years. And he, he notes here that it was even more significant because she was an honored person in Moab and she knew that she was going back to shame and poverty and she decided to, to come. And she changed, just like we discussed by Batakam Naomi. And she married the son because later on, when Rus has her baby, it says, Yulad ben Lin Naomi. A son was born to Naomi, which, I mean, it's not her biological son, but... It kind of is her son because of her role that she played in 
bringing Russ and Boas together. Yeah, and, and going back to that, I guess, so so Russ gets pregnant, she, she marries Boas, she gets pregnant, and she gives birth to a son, and like you said, all the neighbors, women who parenthetically are fun characters in, in the story, they always have something to say, those neighbors. So when Russ has a baby, everyone's like, you lot Ben Lanami, Naami had a son, which, as you just pointed out, um, no, she didn't, Russ just had a baby. And the Malvin points out that through Yibam, this child, whose name was Ovid, was Naami's literal son. He was her child. And and the Zohar explains the same thing. The Zohar Hadash explains that when you do Yibam, it's Machlon. Machlon was Naami's son, Russ's husband. Machlon's, Machlon's soul, his neshama, went into Ovid, went into Russ's son. So this actually was kind of a reincarnation of of Naomi's son. So the Malvin, and the Malvin keeps stressing this over and over. Every time I talk about Russ's son, the Malvin says, this is actually, this was literally Naomi's son. And it's just interesting to point that out. Yeah, and the Nachos Yosef takes a, a less Kabbalistic approach, and he says that it was through Naomi's advice that Russ married Boaz and had a son. So he's considered like her son as well, because her advice brought them together. So Risk is birth, and Nami takes baby, and she becomes his omenes, which the term omenes typically is translated to mean nursemaid, I guess. The Malbim once again explains that she took him like his mother would because he literally was her son. So it says, So Nami takes the baby, and she becomes its omenes. And the Alshich asks, like, what's, what's up with saying that she took the baby? Because as... You probably know um, women like babies, so it's pretty standard for someone to have a baby, and you pick up the baby and be like, "Oh my gosh, so cute, a baby!" So the Alshach points out that when he's when when the pasuk refers to her as his omenes, when it says she became his omenes, his nursemaid, it means she literally nursed the child. And he actually references Mordechai and Esther in the Parm story because in the Parm story it says that he was omen as Hadassa, he the caretaker of Hadassa, which is Esther, and according to some, that means he literally nursed her too. So Naomi took the baby and she was able to nurse him. And those townswomen who always have something to say were upset and they were like, what's up with that miracle? You know, that's a waste of a miracle. We can just get any old wet nurse to nurse this baby. Why are you making Naomi do it? Uh, but the al points out that the miracle was to prove that despite what the neighbors thought, this was actually her son. Ovid was Naomi's son. Even though the neighbors had some doubts because Rus was not Jewish when he married Mahlon, but this was valid Yibam, and Ovid carried, Rus's baby carried the soul of Naomi's son. Despite losing everything, she ended up, according to some, being the spiritual mother of this child, and according to some, actually literally being his mother. So, moving along, the neighbors blessed Naomi with her name. They used Naomi instead of Mara, which is an indication that she's returned to their favor and no longer seen as a disgrace. She's finally been accepted by them. And it's kind of the full circle of her story. You know, she starts off this honored woman in, in Israel and her family abandons them at a time of famine. And her, her life takes a turn for the worse. But uh, she comes back to complete poverty and embarrassment, but she she pulls through. And ultimately, like you said, she, is, she basically has a kid, even though 
it's not her biological kid, although some people say that it kind of is. She starts up a family and like this last section where the neighbors are blessing her and using her name, Naomi, they, they've accepted her. Yeah, so she makes these choices. She returns despite how hard it was and she, in a way, reclaims some element of her old life and gets back on track in a life that I imagine that she'd like. And she ends up in the Megillah, in Tanakh, and being the spiritual or physical grandmother of Mashiach and of Malchus Beis David. Wrapping up, well, what can we take away from the story in Nami? Well, first of all, the one thing that really stands out to me is Nami's tshuva arc. She wasn't young. She lost basically everything. And she was established in Moab. Like, she really had nothing to gain by going back. But she did some self-reflection. She did tshuva. And she completely changed her life around and not only her own life, but the fate of the Jewish people. Exactly, the fate of the entire Jewish people. And this is Malchus based David. This is a David HaMelech, and eventually this will be Mashiach. I'm here, be Amenu, Amen. Yeah, and it's really empowering to look at her story and try to sort of apply some of that to your life and realizing that whatever trajectory your life is in, whether you're older like her or younger, and what whether you've been forced into your life circumstances or whether you've ended up in them through your own choices, which who knows which one Ami was because it depends which opinion you hold by. But however you've ended up where you are, just knowing that it's never too late to do chuba and you can always make the choice to do the right thing. Yeah, and I feel like we can often just get stuck in these ruts and be overwhelmed by the reality of our lives. We realize that they're not the way that we want them to be. And I think just looking at Nami's story, we can we could see how she took stock at such an advanced age. And we don't have to be Naomi. Our lives are probably not as hard as hers was. And hopefully our decisions will not be as difficult or as grand as hers were. But we can still apply that strength that she displayed in in taking stock of her life and in changing it. Even though at the time she didn't know that she had so, so much to gain. Yeah, I think we chose to call this episode Vatakam Naami because she, she makes this one decision to get up. And and to me, that's very inspiring i guess and and we know like dalsha pointed out there that as soon as she made that decision it was considered as though she did she made one decision she decided to get up and she was not she was no longer physically capable of having children presumably and she lost her husband she lost her kids she lost her fortunes and there was no no physical change and yet hashem kind of changed reality for her and she's kind of the physical mom of this baby and and just because she decided to get up I really like that, the fact that you focused on that one decision that she made, because sometimes it really only takes one change that leads to another, that leads to another, that leads to another, that ultimately changes your life for the better. I think that's something that we can take from Naomi to just to stop, to re-examine our lives, and to focus on, on one small thing that we can change. Make the choices that will take us down the path where we want to go. Yeah, and ultimately, just like that Risraba. Rusted her part, 
Boaz did his part and Nami did her part and and then Hashem did his. So I think we could all take that. And if we do our part, Hashem will also do his. Thank you for listening to Neira. Follow us for more exciting episodes on Noteworthy Jewish Women. You can contact us at neirapodcast at gmail.com. That's N-E-R-A-H-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Podcast. If you have a second, please rate and review us on whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Our theme music is La Pomme du Trom by Shane Ivers, courtesy of Silverman Sound. Until next time. Bye!